Meantime, meantime, um, we've been uh, just coming through Easter, just coming through Holy Week, just coming through Lent. And so uh, what we stopped at, it's been kind of an interesting journey over the last couple of months, if you think about it. We were doing a red letter study, and then we went into conversations, and we're just doing questions and answers for an entire month. And then Holy Week hit, so it was Palm Sunday, Easter Sunday. And so I've got this one Sunday before we abscond. And uh, I thought, okay, we can go back into the red letter study. But I think what I want to do is we are, we are entering into a, a whole new season now. And I thought maybe it would be good to take this moment to orient ourselves where we're headed. And then, um, and then we'll, we'll pick up on the other side. But um, as many of you know, I've been spending more and more time in a hospital setting, and uh, maybe that might be fueling a lot of what I've been feeling about the difficulties that people go through, because hospitals are places with lots of drama, and some of the cases that, that come through there are just unimaginable in terms of the pain, uh, especially since it's a pediatric hospital that I'm working for. Um, the parents, uh, when, the, when things go bad with the children, I mean, there's no greater pain than that, and to see that and to see what's happening. Uh, I have been um, in school for the last four months, um, just getting uh, what they call CPE, chaplain, I'm sorry, CPE is clinical pastoral education for the chaplaincy. And so I'm in the second unit of that. And uh, that's been interesting, a lot of uh, interesting information that's coming through, but also interesting people, because we have a cohort, we have a group that meets every week for two plus hours uh, via Zoom, and it's from all over the country, and so there's guys and, and women from uh, every nook and cranny in the United States, and so it's been great to meet these people and to get to know them. And there is one, and uh, should I say his name? Yeah, probably not, I'll let him, I'll let him be anonymous. But he's already working as a chaplain in the prison system in Florida. And so he's got a completely different perspective than a lot of the rest of us who are either coming from a, from a pastorate ministry or from hospice or, or hospital, you know, whatever our particular um, experience may be. But he comes from the prison setting. And uh, each week we do a case study. So someone has to present a case study of some case that they've worked with. And he was doing the case study a couple of weeks ago. And it was a, uh, the, uh, the case of an inmate, longtime inmate that he had known for several years whose father just died, and he had to do the notification. Of course, whenever an inmate is called to the chaplain's office, they know it's not going to be good news. And so this man was ready for it. But um, when he called him to, to come meet him, he couldn't come because they were in count. Now... I was reading the case study at the point where he talked about, you know, I, I called the chaplain, the, the, uh, the inmate, but the inmate couldn't come because we were in count. And I thought that was some kind of a, a typo or something, in count. What does that mean? And then he explained that in the prisons, they do counts multiple times a day. It depends on the prison, but it's at least two, but it can be as many as six times a day that they, they count the entire prison population, of course, to make sure that everybody's still there. And when they're in count, all the, room, all the inmates know that they need to go to their cells, stand by their bunk, and wait until the guard passes by and counts them. And they have to stay there until they clear the count, and then they can start to move about and do whatever it is they were doing. So it's kind of a time when everything just stops, when they're in count. And... It's interesting how things just kind of juxtapose because as he was talking about being in count where everything stops, I thought, we just, 
left a season of being in count. We were in Lent. We were counting up to 40 days. From Ash Wednesday until Holy Saturday, the 40 days of Lent before Easter. And we talked about it as being a time of preparation, a time where everything internally hopefully can stop, go down to a much lower level, so that we can actually clear the distractions, clear the decks, to start to prepare ourselves to be able to see something different, something new. So we've been doing a lot of counting lately. And this ability to recognize the risen Lord that we talked about yesterday on Easter Sunday, to be able to recognize impossible new life coming to us from a direction that we could never imagine. And sometimes you think, well, why do we need to prepare? You know, Jesus rose. It would be easy to recognize him, right? Just be there where he is, and you'll see him, and you will recognize him. But as we talked about on Easter Sunday, nobody recognized Jesus when they first saw him, the risen Jesus. None of his followers, none of those who had been so intimately connected with him for all those years recognized him. And we talked about it as being a process of becoming ready to see the impossible, a process of becoming ready to see the risen Jesus. And what broke the spell, what broke them through, always a fascinating detail of Scripture that I've always been interested in. They recognized Jesus in the smallest, most intimate detail. It was in the tone of voice as he called Mary's name. It was in the breaking and blessing of the bread as he passed it out to those who traveled with him on the road to Emmaus. It was in his tone of voice when he told them to cast their nets onto the other side of the boat. And when they came back to shore to meet him, to confirm that it really was Jesus, he was on his heels in the sand cooking breakfast for them, cooking fish, not doing anything spectacular. Wouldn't we imagine the risen Lord to be riding the clouds or doing something spectacular and he's cooking breakfast? It's in the smallest details, the smallest, most intimate details of everyday life that we meet and recognize the risen Jesus, or we don't at all. This is the lesson that the scripture is giving us. We miss it as we focus on the miracle of the resurrection, but the scriptures are focusing on the reaction, the process of recognizing of the followers of Jesus. When the women come to the tomb, and the two men are waiting for them there, and they, they say, why do you seek the living among the dead? It's among the living that we find Jesus. It's among us, the living, among the movement of the living, our movement, that we find Jesus. And so this 40 days of count that we've been counting through Lent is that wilderness time that we've been spending to strip off everything that we think we know about Jesus so that we can actually see him cooking breakfast. Who's cooking breakfast for you? Who cooked breakfast for you this morning? Can we see Jesus there? Can we see God there? Or are we going to miss the hour of our visitation? Because what Jesus is telling us is that God is here, is now, and impacts and, and imbues everything. And if we can't find God in these small, seemingly insignificant details of our lives, then 
we won't at all. But as long as we were in the count for Lent, and as far as we may have come in our contemplative practice, in our clearing of the decks, of our ability to see more and more, all of this is just the beginning. And that's, again, what the scriptures and the liturgical calendar that's been with us for millennia are trying to tell us. Did you know that we're in count again right now? Yeah? Did you? We just started another period of preparation. This time the count is going to 49. And then one day after, the day of 50, is the Pentecost, which is what Pentecost means from the Greek. It just means 50th, right? 50 days after Easter. Why is that significant? What are we now preparing for is the question I suppose we could ask. See, Scripture is illustrating the shape of our spiritual journeys. And if we read the Scriptures carefully, we will see the shape of that spiritual formation. We'll see the shape of Jesus' way in such a way that we can actually follow it ourselves. It so helps to have a map, doesn't it? Even if the map is on your phone right now and talks to you, it helps to have a map. Scripture gives us a map of the journey so we can tell where we are and tell how we need to go. Not the details along the way, not the landmarks necessarily, but milestones certainly, and the shape of the journey absolutely. Scripture is illustrating that for us. Hosea 11.1, God is talking to the prophet but talking about Israel as if Israel were a single person. Often Israel is anthropomorphized as a single person. And we can see the, the connection between the collective, between the group and the community, and the shape of that journey collectively, and the shape of each individual journey within that community. And that's what's happening here. God tells Hosea, out of Egypt I called my son. This is Israel, the Exodus, being called out of Egypt. Moses bringing the people out of slavery, out of death. Out of Egypt I called my son. And then Matthew picks up on that and quotes that in Matthew 2. When Joseph and Mary took Jesus into exile into Egypt to avoid the slaughter of the innocents by Herod. Then out of Egypt I called my son. His son is coming back now to the promised land. So out of slavery, out of death, we see this. And so that's what Pesach, Passover, is all about. The feast of Pesach, Passover, corresponds with their barley harvest in the spring, but it commemorates also the exodus. It commemorates the physical liberation of the people, physically being liberated out of Egypt. But that's not the end of the story. Because in early summer, there's Shavuot. Shavuot, or in our language, weeks, the Feast of Weeks, celebrates the wheat harvest. It also celebrates the giving of the law at Sinai. And this represents to the Jews the spiritual liberation of their people. Because it was a time when they were given the law. Their liberation wasn't complete just when they were physically liberated. Their liberation became complete when they were given a new culture. They were given a new government. They were given a new spiritual relationship with God. They were given a theocracy. Couldn't hold on to it, but that's what they were given. A way of dealing directly as a nation with their God. It was a new spiritual connection. 
So the exodus was the physical liberation, but the giving of the law they understood as the spiritual liberation. And of course, Pesach corresponds with Easter, and Shavuot corresponds with Pentecost for us as Christians. And then in between the two, in between Pesach and Shavuot, in between Easter and Pentecost, is the counting of the Omer. The counting of the Omer. And Omer simply means a sheaf in our language. In the ancient times, a sheaf was a a measure of unthreshed grain. So it was just a bound sheaf of stalks of grain. But it's a way they measured how much grain they had. And this is where we are right now, liturgically. Sefirot ha-omer, the counting of the omer. So what's going on with this counting of the omer? What does it really mean? Well, all the major festivals of the Jewish liturgical calendar were based in agriculture originally. They were agricultural people. Remember when we talked about them coming out of Egypt where they had the river system, the Nile and all of that? So they had the the yearly flooding. They had reliable irrigation. They kind of had control over the crops and control over their food supply. When they get to Canaan, there's none of that. There is no sustainable water supply for the people there for agriculture. Though They are completely dependent on the rains. And there were two rains, the early rains and the latter rains, the Yore and the Melkosh. And the Yore were the ones that came in the fall, and they softened up the ground so they could do the first plantings of the barley and the wheat. And then later in the spring, then came the late rains, and they watered them and brought the crop to harvest. And the barley ripened first. It ripened in mid-spring usually around late March, early April. But the wheat took 50 days more. It took a month and a half more, and it ripened in mid-early summer. And so this was the agricultural year. And so these festivals reflect those particular points in their agricultural calendar. And so Pesach comes in the spring, in late March, and it celebrates the barley harvest. Shavuot comes in early summer, seven weeks later, and it celebrates the wheat harvest. If we take a look at Leviticus 23, here's what the law actually told the people starting in verse 15. You shall also count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day when you brought in the sheaf, the omer, of the wave offering. There shall be seven complete Sabbaths. You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a new grain offering to the Lord. So here's the the simple little blip that we get in Leviticus. And the people have to figure out, now how do we actually do this? Well, the the Sabbath, the first day of Pesach is considered a Shabbat, considered a Sabbath, because no work was permitted, as it wasn't on the seventh day of the week, on the actual Saturday Shabbat. So the first day was considered a uh, Sabbath. There was no work done. So on the second day of, of Pesach, that's when you would go out, you would cut the first stock of barley, you would create a sheaf, an omer, and you would take it to the temple. And there you would offer it to the priest who would wave it in each of the four cardinal directions, signifying God's omnipresence. And then it would be burned on the altar. And so this was the grain offering that they're talking about. Bring it to the temple. And then at that point, you begin counting. You count each night from that second day of Pesach on until you get to seven weeks of seven days 49 days, and you would have a blessing and you would have a count. The blessing would be in Hebrew, and then someone in the family would say, 
today. Actually, today is the ten is the ten days. Was what they would say. Today is ten days, which is one week and three days of the Omer. So they would count it both in days and weeks. So tonight they're going to have to say, because their day starts at sunset. So at sunset, someone will say, today is eleven days which is one week and four days of the Omer, and so on and so forth until you get to the 49th day. And then on the 50th day, while the temple still stood, you would cut a sheaf of wheat and you would do the same thing, take it to the temple. It's all about this idea of seven times seven. And we've talked about this before, that seven is the number of spiritual perfection. So seven times seven is just making that point stronger and stronger as they go. Here's a Shabbat, the second day. We begin counting. Now, why this count? Why do we need to count? Well, originally, it was about agricultural timekeeping. How do you keep the time between the time that the barley is ripe and the time that the wheat is ripe? Well, you count the days. You count the seven weeks, and then you can know when you're supposed to go and harvest again. But more deeply, the people understood that this was also a call to awareness for God's provision. These two harvests, these early and late rains, were life and death to the people. If their crops didn't succeed, there was no way that they were going to get through the year, get through the winter. And so it's absolutely life and death. There was no control over these elements. And so the awareness of the provision on God is what is so important. And even deeper still, another layer, is the awareness of the movement from being slaves to liberation. Remember, these holidays that were originally agricultural then were overlaid with the significant movements of God in the life of their nation. The exodus was connected with Pesach, and the giving of the law was connected with Shavuot. And so this idea of the movement the counting reminds us we were first liberated physically, but we're awaiting the spiritual liberation. And to a Jew, spiritual liberation here and now was salvation. That's what their God promised them. So from a physical liberation to a spiritual liberation and a new spiritual relationship with God is what is being prepared for and we're counting out in this season liturgically in the counting of the Omer, the counting of the days till Pentecost. And this counting is the defining structure. It is the discipline of this preparation that we're talking about to prepare for and to establish this new awareness that we have in God. Now, our New Testament, our Christian scriptures, overlay on this structure, this Jewish structure. The followers of Jesus, who were Jews, of course, and were following their liturgical calendar, collectively experience the same shape of the journey that we're talking about here as a group. They experienced the exodus, didn't they? That initial call that Jesus gave them, come follow me. They had to make a decision to follow or not. But those who dropped their nets, those who dropped everything at the toll booth or wherever they happened to be and came and followed Jesus were the ones that came out of slavery, came out of death, Jesus is in, as the new Moses, you know, guiding them. And then they had years of relationship with the physical Jesus while he was there with them. And then they entered the wilderness period at Calvary, the shock and the loss of the crucifixion. 
the seeming end of everything that they had been hoping for, promised, everything that they were living for. And then there was this realization of resurrection that came on them, not right away, because they didn't recognize that he was there at first. But over a period of time, as they started to realize that Jesus was present intimately in their lives still, just as he was before, but altered, right? This realization of resurrection. And then there was a period of adjustment where they had to adjust, learn to live with the risen Jesus in this altered state. He was still Jesus, but he wasn't the same anymore. He could kind of wink in and wink out, the scriptures tell us, come through walls. There was a difference in him, but he was still Jesus. They had to learn to live in this altered state with him. Jesus remained, the scriptures tell us, on the earth for 40 days, and then he ascended to heaven. And then there was another 10 days after that, before Pentecost. And so they learn to live with him in this altered state, and then they need to learn to live with him as unseen spirit, completely pulled out of their sight, completely pulled out of their cognition for 10 more days. And 10, we all know that 40 means, right, time of trial and testing into a, a rebirth. 10, though, can mean integration. It can mean wholeness. It can mean completion. And so the 50 together, symbolically with those numbers, brings us to Pentecost. Because at Pentecost, there is a breakthrough into a rebirth in spiritual awareness. It's that Pentecost moment that we'll be talking about on Pentecost Sunday, where the Spirit rushes through the upper room and takes them to a new place in their lives. Now, this collective shape of their journey is the same as the shape of our journey as well, of course. Think about it, right? We are called... We feel the need for something deeper in our lives. If we're honest, if we're paying attention, all of you are here because you felt the need for something deeper. You felt that you were being drawn to something greater than just yourself, something that transcended just you as an individual person. And in that call, some of us eventually respond. We answer. We accept the call. And we join a physical community of some sort. We move from the self to something greater than ourselves in a physical community, whether it's a church or whether it's some other organization that we're looking for to find that power that's greater than ourselves. That's the exodus part. And then as we're in the group, we need to learn to follow the rules. We need to learn what the rules are, and then we got to follow them, right? we got to follow the culture of the group. And it's in that rule following initially that we think we're finding our salvation. We're thinking and we're finding our approval from God. Follow the rules. Do what we're supposed to do. Follow the law. And this becomes home to us, this community. This becomes salvation to us. And then life shows up, as it always does. The loss shows up. The shocks show up. We have our Calvary moment in one way or another. Maybe it can be personal. Maybe it can be part of the group's life. Who knows what it is? But it breaks the connection that we had so carefully tended and built in this exodus. And it throws everything into doubt. And we don't know what we're doing anymore. But if we can move through the grief, and it is grief when we have this loss, This Calvary moment, whatever it happens to be, 
if we can move through that grief and get to the other side and see that God still lives. We couldn't see that maybe at the moment of loss. How is this possible? Is God really there? Everything goes into doubt. But if we move through the grief and we can see that God still lives, then we're going to enter a period of adjustment, right? We're going to have to find out how we live with God in this altered state. We have to accommodate the loss into the reality of our being and the reality of our lives. We can't pretend it didn't exist. But God still lives. How does he live? What is the nature of this relationship? We have to expand what we think we believe and our convictions in order to accommodate this loss. And what we come out with is a new understanding of this physical community, a new understanding of life and how we live it. And now we're back in the count. Because it's not the end of the story. More is always coming. In fact, when you think about it, most of us spend most of our lives in the count. From being called into something greater, but then experiencing that loss and trying to accommodate it, trying to live through it, and waiting for the next piece. I don't know about you as you hear this shape of the journey that I'm trying to lay out for you, but this was exactly the shape of my journey. I left um, Catholicism early 20s, and maybe 12 or 13 years, I had my own Calvary moment that started in the, the motivation and the drive to try to find something that made sense in life. And it was several years before I ended up back in Christianity, back in an evangelical church, and then I, I just incorporated. I was home. I learned the rules as well as I could. I tried to follow the rules. But then there was another Calvary moment, another breaking of that connection where everything was cast back into doubt. But I did something different at that point. I didn't leave. I stuck, and I wanted to figure out if this works. How does this work? How is Christianity real? How is Jesus really the person that I need to follow for the rest of my life? And I went through that period of adjustment. I was able to accommodate that and live with the community in that altered state. And then it was years later again, about 10, that I think I had a Pentecost moment. But on the other hand, I still feel like I'm in the count. So my stone not yet smooth. But there was a moment that something broke through and I understood more firmly who this father is that Jesus was trying to tell me. And I realized at that point that I would never leave Jesus. My Christianity isn't always recognizable to others in Christendom, but I will never leave Jesus. That was the shape of the journey. You know what? I know that it is the shape of many of your journeys as well because we've talked about it, talked about that shape. And I hope as I am reciting this, either personally or collectively, that you're double thinking this with me and seeing the same shape in your journey. What is the journey that brought you to be sitting here in this chair right now, this Sunday? It's got to be something similar. We're in the count. We have been called. We have answered the call. We have felt the loss. We have accommodated the loss. We're still here. We're still a member of the community. 
But we know there's something more as well. We're still counting. And liturgically, right now in this year, 2023, that's exactly where we are. We're between Easter and Pentecost, between the physical and the spiritual liberations. And we're exactly where Nicodemus was when he came to visit Jesus that night. And just to put a little finer point on it, let's go to John 3, starting right at verse 1. And just read the story again, just to refresh ourselves. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to Jesus, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? And Jesus answered, Truly I say to you, unless you are born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Don't be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who's born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe... How will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Notice the imagery that Jesus is using. Born of water, born of spirit. Born physically, born spiritually. Right? Physical liberation, spiritual liberation. Now the leader of of the physical community was Nicodemus. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was a member of that 72-member ruling body. He was also a leader of the Pharisees, which were the teachers, the lawyers of the people. So he was an absolute leader of his community, highly revered. But he was being drawn to something deeper. He had already experienced the exodus, the physical liberation. He was part of a community. But he's being called to something deeper. And he's been called to Jesus. He's attracted to Jesus. There's something in Jesus, even what he's heard from afar. He needs to come check it out. And yet when Jesus confronts him and tells him the things that really need to be said, he can't understand, he over-literalizes it, and he certainly can't accept these words of spiritual liberation. He was not yet prepared to see. He couldn't see the risen Lord. He couldn't see the things of the Spirit yet. He was still thinking along physical lines. But off stage now, in the rest of the Gospels, because he doesn't show up until the very end of John. Off stage, Nicodemus begins his count. He starts counting. His time between Pesach and Shavuot, his time between the physical liberation and the spiritual one. And how do we know that he breaks through? Take a look at John 19, where he reappears after John 3, starting at verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission. 
So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes about a hundred pounds weight. hundred pounds? You could probably embalm about 400 people with that much. What was he doing with that? The hundred pounds is significant because that's what you would bring for a king or a significant leader or ruler who had died, who meant so much to the community, who was a leader of the community to show the respect and the hugeness of their impact on the people. This is who he is telling us Jesus is as he brings this amazing amount of spices. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. This is Nicodemus coming out. He's not worried anymore. What the heck happened from sneaking in at night? You can imagine with his talit, his prayer shawl pulled over his head like a hoodie, to this bold, courageous public statement that he's making about who Jesus is in his life to him, the freedom to act out of his deep conviction regardless of consequence to himself. Was this his Pentecost moment? We can't know for sure, of course. Likely his stone was still not yet smooth. Likely there was still a part of him that was in the count, but there was definitely a breakthrough an absolute breakthrough, this huge change in him. How did he do it? How did he count? How did he get from there to here? We have to remember something. There is a great line that I heard years ago that I've told you a hundred times probably by now. But the means we use must match the ends we seek. Please let that percolate for a minute. The means we use must match the ends we seek. Why? Because the means we use always produce the same ends. We can't work for peace and connection by using a method of division and aggression. It will never work. You can't use fear to get to love. It won't work. Jesus told us over and over again, like breeds like. You're not going to get figs from thorn bushes. It doesn't work. The means we use must match the ends we seek. That's what faith is about. Faith is about living as if. As if the things that you are convinced of are actually true. And living as if means that you are now living before you have all the evidence, before all the facts are in. You are living the ends that you are seeking now in your daily means. To be able to do that kind of backwards, to begin living as if what Jesus said was true. I believe this is what Nicodemus did. He started living as if what Jesus said was true, even though he couldn't understand. What did he mean about the wind blowing? What did he mean about spiritual rebirth? But he started living as if it were true, and it became true for him. He started living the shape of the journey. He allowed Jesus' words to do their work on him, to question everything he thought he knew. He became willing to drop his nets, to let go 
of the hold that that belief system had on him, his investment to his own power and all the trappings of power that he held as a leader. He was willing to let go and things began to change. The physical liberation of Pesach, answering the call, entering the new community, the new tribe is what begins this process. It is our exodus that gets us into this new place. But when the emotional lift that you get from all that newness, the honeymoon period, right? When the emotional lift wears off or and or when the trauma hits, if you remain, then you must adjust to the altered state. This is the wilderness experience. The Jews came out of Egypt, crossed the Red Sea, full of themselves, but now into the wilderness, which took the life out of them. And in that wilderness, in that time of adjustment, we learn how to live without the certainty of the groupthink, because that, has, that is what's been stripped away. Without that certainty anymore, now accepting the mystery of God and the mystery of our lives here, accepting the interdependence, the humility, and the vulnerability of what it means to really be a follower, do that for seven weeks of seven, the symbolic time of spiritual perfection is the recipe for the breakthrough to this new awareness. To be able to align our values with God's values, no longer just following rules, following law, but actually taking pleasure in what God takes pleasure in, aligning our deepest purpose with God's deepest purpose. So we're no longer following rules. We're just doing what we love to do. And in the doing of that, becoming convinced of God's nature, the nature of love, that degreeless love, experiencing it, and finally knowing that we possess it. How do you know that you possess anything free and clear? Whatever it may be, whether it's a house, a spouse, a dog, how do you know that you really possess something absolutely free and clear? <laughs> Some hands are going up. Well, let me just answer it my way. Cut to the chase. The only way you know that you actually own something free and clear is if you can give it away absolutely with no strings attached. I can give you my car because it's paid off. The bank doesn't own it. I do. I can give you the pink slip. Don't come see me about this after but I could. I could do that. That's the only way that we absolutely know that we own something. And we can't know that our spiritual gifts are really ours. We can't know that God's love is really ours until we're experiencing it leaving us for the beloved with no strings attached, freely received, freely given. In the giving of it, as it's leaving us, we know that it was ours because we could give it freely with no strings attached. And if we know who our Father is, we know that it's just a throughput. We're not giving away something that we won't have anymore. We can't. It's a constant flow. We are just a channel, as Francis said. We're just a channel. But in that movement, in that flow, is when we get the final piece and we understand how this really works, how God's love really works. We know this as it leaves us. Now, this would be great if it only took 49 days. 
but that's been compressed symbolically, we talked about. Real life is much messier, and it takes a lot longer. But the scriptures are showing us the shape of the journey, the call to community, the call to the spiritual liberation, and then to Calvary, the shock and awe and the loss, to the counting, to the period of adjustment, learning how to live in that altered state, and then to the rebirth, to the spiritual liberation, from physical birth to spiritual rebirth. Nicodemus and all of Jesus' followers had to navigate and negotiate this path, this process, this journey, and we do too. There is no shortcut. There is no other way of doing this. Jesus said, anyone who jumps over the fence is a thief and a robber. It's only the one that comes by this door, and I am that door that will go and find pasture and then find safety at night. Calvary is the fulcrum. Calvary is the point of balance. It's the threshold. It's the liminal space between the two liberations, the two births, between the physical and the spiritual. The way to Pentecost for every single one of us always begins at Calvary. Because Calvary is where we break down all those physical forms, break down all the certainty that we think we have, break down everything that we're holding on to. It's the process of realizing that our values and our priorities are changing that we're moving to pure spirit more and more. We're beginning to see the risen Lord and God everywhere, in everything, no matter how small. We see God among the living, in the smallest detail. Before we leave, I wanted to read you one little story that I hope will illustrate this, but I think it also caught my attention because we just lost our dog two weeks ago had to put our Lucy down after 14 years and uh, it's uh, affected me a lot more than I thought it would you know she was an old dog she was getting really annoying <laughs> peeing all over the house you know she, she was at that point right in life but I miss her and it's affected me and I can't get it out of my mind you know I was one who called and made the appointment I'm the one who set her death day you know that kind of stuff just kind of works your head a little bit I think but then I came across this story actually a while back that it just hits. This is a, just called a letter from the post office. Our 14-year-old dog, Abby, died last month. The day after she passed away, my four-year-old daughter, Meredith, was crying and talking about how much she missed Abby. She asked if we could write a letter to God so that when Abby got to heaven, God would recognize her. I told her that I thought we could. So she dictated these words. Dear God, will you please take care of my dog? Abby died yesterday and is with you in heaven. I miss her very much. I'm happy that you let me have her as my dog, even though she got sick. I hope you will play with her. She likes to swim and play with balls. I'm sending a picture of her, so when you see her, you will know that she is my dog. I really miss her. Love, Meredith. We put the letter in an envelope with a picture of Abby and Meredith, addressed it to God in heaven. We put our return address on it. 
Meredith pasted several stamps on the front of the envelope because she said it would take a lot of stamps to get the letter all the way to heaven. <laughs> and that afternoon, she dropped it into the letterbox at the post office. A few days later, she asked if God had gotten the letter yet. I told her that I thought he had. Yesterday, there was a package wrapped in gold paper on our front porch addressed to Meredith in an unfamiliar hand. Meredith opened it, and inside was a book by Mr. Rogers called When a Pet Dies. And taped to the inside front cover was the letter we had written to God in its opened envelope. On the opposite page was the picture of Abby and Meredith and this note. Dear Meredith, Abby arrived safely in heaven. Having the picture was a big help, and I recognized her right away. Abby isn't sick anymore. Her spirit is here with me, just like it stays in your heart. Abby loved being your dog. Since we don't need our bodies in heaven, I don't have any pockets to keep your picture in, so I'm sending it back to you in this little book for you to keep and have something to remember Abby by. Thank you for the beautiful letter, and thank your mother for helping you write it and sending it to me. What a wonderful mother you have. I picked her especially for you. I send my blessings every day. And remember that I love you very much. By the way, I'm easy to find. I am wherever there is love. Love, God. We don't know who replied to Meredith, but there is a beautiful soul working in the dead letter department who understands love. Now, I don't know if this is true. You know, it's one of those things you find on the internet. But it should be true. And I'm going to say that it's true. Because I want to believe, I want to believe, right, that I can see God in a postal worker. A postal worker who saw God in a little girl and a dog. This is what it's all about. All this stuff we're talking about, all of these traditions and liturgies and all these theologies, can it come down to this? Where you see a need and you step in and you let the Spirit channel just the right words, if words are necessary, or just the right actions. And you find yourself in the middle of this exchange that proves to you that this love is real. As it's leaving you, you feel it entering you at the same time. This is that Pentecost moment. This is what it comes down to. Let it be that simple, that profound, that intimate. Find God here. It's our Pentecost moment even as we continue to count. Let's pray. Father, we're such a strange people. We can be almost simultaneously capable of such incredible goodness and love and then such horror at the same time, it seems. Help us not to grow weary in our own well-doing.
Help us to see beyond the horror and the difficulties to the good that is still here and around us everywhere we go. And help us further to recognize that you are in that good. You are the good. There is no good without you. And since you will always be here, the good will always be here. And if we can't find it, that's not your fault. Help us to break through. Help us to see you. Help us to understand, as we're counting, what it is we're really counting toward. Not something spectacular, but just the tiniest things in which you live with us. Thank you, Father. Never let us forget. We can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand?